Hi and welcome to The Kind Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. Today I was going to do a different um, episode, however my laptop has began to, or decided to not work shall we say. So if anyone knows anything with regards to laptops and mouses and everything like that, just give me a shout. So instead, because <laughs> I need help. Uh, instead though, I'm going to take us back to the 1800s and I know it's not everybody's favourite, but I haven't done it in a long time. Uh, the last person who did it was actually Caitlin. So, huh. I was um, going to say it was me. <laughs> so this time I'm going to tell you the story of Mary Ann Cotton. Okay, Caitlin, so have you heard of this one? Surprisingly, I've not. I've not heard this one at all, so I'm looking forward to hearing it. (laughs) Well, I'll just begin. Mary Ann Cotton was born Mary Ann Robson in October 1832 at Low Moorsley, apologies if I've pronounced that wrong, in County Durham. She was baptised at St Mary's and her father, Michael, was a minor and he was apparently very religious and quite fierce when it came to disciplining his children and probably his wife and things like that as well. And, you know, we're in the early 1800s. There was nothing really about her mum too much in the the beginning. Now, when Mary Ann was eight, her parents moved the whole family um, to a village of Merton, where she went to a new school, and she found it difficult to make friends. However, soon after the move, her father fell 150 feet. And remember, he is a miner, and he sadly died down a mine shaft. Now, in 1843, Mary Ann's widowed mother, Margaret, she married a George Stott, who Mary did not get along with because that is her stepfather and apparently he was quite a disciplinary, he disciplined as well. Now at the age of 16, she moved out to become a nurse at Edward Potter's home in the nearby village of South Hetton. After three years there, she returned to her mother's home where she trained as a dressmaker. So it's quite a change considering she went from a nurse to a dressmaker. Yeah, I was about to be like, I thought you said nurse. So yeah, mm-hmm. career change. Yeah, very big uh, career change. Now, in 1852, at the age of 20, Mary Ann married colliery labourer William Mowbray in Newcastle upon Tyne. They soon moved to Plymouth, or Plymouth, yeah, in Devon, and the couple had five children, but four of whom died from gastric fever now oh what a shame Uh uh-huh and I am saying this is the early 1800s or the middle now of the 1800s but that's still quite a large death rate you know four out of five William and Marianne they moved back to northeast England where they had and lost three more children now William became a foreman at South Hitton Colliery and then a fireman aboard a steam vessel He died as well, unfortunately, around Mary, but he died of intestinal disorder in January 1865. William's life was insured 
by the British and Prudential Insurance Office and Mary Ann collected a payout of £35 on his death, which was equivalent to about half a year's wages for a manual labourer at that time. And I googled how much £35 would be kind of in the equivalent of today's money, so it's about just over £5,000. Which I thought it would have been well more, you know, with the equivalent from like over a hundred years ago. Yeah, but still, I expected way more. Uh huh. So, so like but, he was getting ten grand a year equivalent at his job. Yeah, that's wild, much. isn't it? Mm-hmm. But I guess back then you could probably buy a loaf of bread for about two pence. Yeah, fair. So, <laughs> but this didn't deter um, Mary. You know, she's gone through a lot of losses in her life, and soon after William Mowbray's death. Mary Ann moved to Seam Harbour, County Durham, where she then struck up a relationship with Joseph Natras. He, however, was engaged to another woman, so she left Seaham after that guy's Joseph's wedding. But during this time, her three and a half year old daughter had also sadly died, leaving her with one out of the nine she had had. So one out of nine children. Surely not. Surely not. So she has now got one child. She returned to Sunderland and she took up employment at the Sunderland Infirmary, which was the House of Recovery for the Cure of Contagious Fever, Dispensary and Humane Society. So I'm guessing she's went back to kind of her nursing side of things in her career. And she sent her remaining child, Isabella, to live with her mother. One of her patients at the infirmary was an engineer, George Ward. They married on the 28th of August, 1865. Now, this was about eight months following the death of her first husband, William Mowbray. Now, George Ward continued to suffer ill health and he died in October 1866 after a long illness characterised by paralysis and intestinal problems. Now, remember, William also had intestinal problems. The attending doctor later gave evidence that George Ward had been very ill, yet he had been surprised that the man's death was so sudden. But once again, Mary Ann collected insurance money from her husband's death. This one, I don't know the amount, but I'm guessing it's probably around about the same amount of money. Now, we move on. We're still in 1866, but Mary Ann has a third husband. James Robinson. He was a shipwright. not a fourth husband. Third husband. Because the the man between the first and the second husband. Yeah, because he was away to marry someone else. Yeah, remember. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. And this from her husband, her first husband died in 1865. So we're still in 1866 and it's uh, November and her second husband passed away in October 1866. So James Robinson, he was a shipwright at Pally and Sunderland whose wife, Hannah, had recently died. So he was now a widower. He had hired Marianne as a housekeeper in November 1866. And one month later, when James's baby died of gastric fever, he turned to his housekeeper, Mary Ann, for comfort. And she became pregnant 
Then Mary Ann's mother, living in Seam Harbour, County Durham, became ill, so she immediately went to her. Although her mother started getting better, she also began to complain of stomach pains. She died at the age of 54 in the spring of 1867, nine days after Marianne had actually arrived with her mum. So this was a year with James and her mum has passed away. Marianne's daughter, Isabella, from the marriage to William Mowbray, was brought back to the Robinson household, so with husband number three, James Robinson, and soon developed bad stomach pains and died. And right, I'm so, not being nasty, but like, I wouldn't be pals with this woman. No. But like, even if she's not caused all these deaths, that's a bad omen. Aye. Like, like do you want to meet people and it's like they've had like a lot of amount of like deaths and unfortunately, fact, this is this woman. Yeah. And I'm saying it for touch, this woman. Yeah, I'd be like, don't Aye. touch me. Because yeah. I'm going to die. <laughs> don't speak to me ever again. Don't think about me. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and just to add to that, so Isabella soon passed away, but so did another two of James Robinson's children. So technically her stepchildren. And all three children were buried in the last two weeks of April 1867. So these happened kind of one by one very quickly in the span of a very short time. Now, I did say, apologies, I give you the wrong information. Um, this is husband number three, but they were actually together for a year first. So they didn't marry until the 11th of August, 1867. Now, by this time, he, she had also, well, she may have not, but I mean, three kids and a mother have died within that year. And he still marries her. Now, their child, though, James Robinson's child and Mary Ann's child was born that November. So November 1867. She sadly became ill with stomach pains and died in March 1868. Anyone check the water? You'd think. Now, James Robinson, meanwhile, had become suspicious of his wife's insistence that he ensure his life. <laughs> <laughs> finally, finally we're onto something. Exactly, there is now some suspicion. And he discovered that she had run up debts of £60 behind his back and had stolen more than £50 that she was supposed to have put in the bank. So that 60 and 50, I'm going to say that must be at least about 10 grand plus equivalent, if you think about it from back at the start, what £35 was. So she is on a roll. Now, the last straw was when he found she had been forcing his children to pawn household valuables for her. So he threw her out. So he, they are no longer husband and wife. Well, they still are legally. But James Robinson was having nothing of it. But there, he's a wise main, man. Exactly. However, the main suspicion after a while, like a year or so, was because she asked for him to ensure his life. I'm like, about twelve people have just died around you, James. Read the room. Yeah, yeah that's not the conversation you should be having. <laughs> no. Now, Mary Ann was desperate. She was living on the streets. She was going through it, and she was having a rough time. So her then friend Margaret Cotton introduced her to her brother 
Frederick Cotton, who was a Pittman and recent widower living in, I'll probably pronounce this wrong, but Wallbottle, Northumberland. Perfect. Lost... Get a life insurance in. <laughs> exactly. And he, they had a lot in common because he had lost two of his four children. So, you know, talking points are kind of, you know, I can relate to you in a way. So they hit it off. Margaret had acted as substitute mother for the remaining children, Frederick Jr. and Charles. But in late March 1870, oh, this was, sorry, Margaret Cotton, um, which was Frederick's brother, okay? But in late March 1870, Margaret died, so Margaret Cotton died from an undetermined stomach ailment, which left Mary mm. Anne, yes, back in the stomach, but this left Mary Anne to console the grieving Frederick Sr. Soon her 11th pregnancy was underway. Stop it. Yes. Now, Frederick and Marianne were bigamously married on the 17th of September 1870 in Newcastle. And the, the reason for it was a, I may pronounce it wrong, but bigamous relationship was because she was still legally married to James yeah. Robinson. So technically, this marriage does not count. And their son, Robert, was soon born in early 1871. Now, soon after, Mary Ann learnt that her former lover, Joseph Natras, was living in the nearby village of West Auckland and no longer married. So this was a guy, you know, between winner, winner. number one and two. Mm-hmm. So she rekindled the romance and persuaded her new family to move near him. Frederick followed his... Uh, predecessors shall we say to the grave in December of that year from gastric fever insurance had was there no like police or doctors or anything at this time you would think because no one has raised the alarm bells at all with all these deaths and they're all the same gastric fever or something to do with the stomach like I don't understand and there's nothing here saying oh Maybe we should look into this after number two. But no, we're on about the 11th like victim here. Because guess what? Insurance had been taken out on his life. And the lives of his sons. No. Yes. Now, after Frederick's death... Was it Neil? Sorry. Anyway, Mr. Matras soon became Marianne's lodger. She gained employment as a nurse to an excise officer recovering from smallpox, which is John Quick Manning. And guess what? Soon she became pregnant by him with her 12th child. Frederick Jr., you know, from Frederick Cotton, his son, he died in March 1872, and the infant Robert that they both had together soon after. Then her old lover Natras became ill with gastric fever and died just after revising his will oh my in Marianne's no. favour. 
No. And the insurance policy Marianne had taken out on Charles's life still awaited collection. So this was the other child. Now, Marianne's downfall came when she was asked by a parish official, Thomas Riley, to help nurse a woman who was ill with smallpox. She complained that the last surviving cotton boy, boy, Charles Edward, was in the way and asked Riley if he could be committed to the workhouse. So this is your like 12th child. You've been having problems all the time. This is about your fifth stepchild, but he's in the way. So the parish official, Thomas, who also served as West Auckland's assistant coroner, said she would have to accompany him. So she told Thomas that the boy was sickly and added, I won't be troubled long. He'll go like all the rest of the cottons. Why would you say that? Now, five days later, when Marianne told Thomas Riley that the boy had died, Thomas went to the village police and convinced the doctor to delay writing a death certificate until the finally. circumstances could be investigated. Like, like finally. So Thomas, he's finally in the know. Someone that doesn't just go, all oh, right, enough death certificate for you, hun. Now... Marianne's first port of call after Charles's death was not the doctor's, but the insurance office. There she discovered that no money would be paid out until a death certificate was issued. Now, inquest was held and the jury returned a verdict of natural causes. So Marianne claimed to have used Arrowroot to relieve his illness and said Thomas Riley had made accusations against her because she had rejected his advances. Then the local newspapers latched onto the story, obviously, as they would, and discovered Marianne had moved around. The sun's gone straight in. <laughs> yeah, they're like, this is ours. Time to shine. But they discovered that Marianne had moved around northern England and lost three husbands, a lover, a friend, her mother, and a dozen children, all of whom had died of stomach fevers. This is really sad because obviously people did die naturally horrible, but this is just chaos. It's mental, and I can't believe uh, this is real. Now, rumour obviously turned to suspicion and forensic inquiry, as it would. The doctor who attended Charles had kept samples and they tested positive for arsenic. He went to the police who arrested Marianne and ordered the exhumation of Charles's body. She was charged with his murder, although the trial was delayed until after the delivery of her last child on the 10th of January, 1873. And who's she pregnant with this thing? So this is, well, she named this child Margaret Edith Quickman in Cotton. So this was the person that, she had found in between I think husband number four and the death of um, one of her other lovers <laughs> if that's any help now yeah got you got you Marianne Cotton's trial began on the 5th of March 1873 so only three months after she had given birth now the delay was for this this was apparently a delay but I'm like well nowadays it's probably not that much of a delay was caused by a problem in the selection of the public prosecutor 
Mr. Aspinwall was supposed to get the job, but the Attorney General, Sir John Duke Coleridge, chose his friend and protege, Charles Russell. So I'm guessing it's just a, you can't do the job, I want my, fr- my friend to do it. Now, Charles Russell's appointment over Aspinwall's led to a question in the House of Commons. However, it was accepted and Russell conducted the prosecution. So this was kind of, I guess it was a problem back then as well. Just, you know, I want my friend to do this. Um, you can't do it. Well, we're going to take it to the House of Commons. But it was ruled they didn't mind. Now, Mary Ann Cotton, her case would be the first of several famous poisoning cases he would be involved in during his career which apparently also included Adelaide Bartlett and Florence Maybrick, which are also uh, famous poison cases that women murderers uh, used. And I'll be covering them at some point. (laughs) Exactly. They'll probably be 1890s and I'll be there. Now, the defence in the case was handled by Mr Thomas Campbell Foster and the defence at Mary's trial claimed that Charles died from inhaling arsenic used as a dye in the green wallpaper of the cotton home. Now, remember back then, arsenic was a big thing in wallpaper. So you could kind of get away with that to a certain extent. Um, Obviously, this was, is it the Victorian era? Back then, I want to say. Which was... I I did my studies, you did geography. This isn't a question (laughs) Yeah, that's true. If anyone can tell us what either this was saying, we'll yeah. be really appreciated. <laughs> I want to say Victorians, because then the Georgians kind of done a load so that Victorians could be like, right, we're going to make this better, and then we Every... come along and, I don't know, ruin it. Do you know when it comes to history, right, I really need to grow up, but I think it'll save me for the rest of my life. Horrible history. Yes. Like, horrible histories is all I know about history. If you have any history question, I'll be able to tell you a song from horrible histories. <laughs> so that's what was going through my head there. It was like, gorgeous Georgians <laughs> and vile Victorians. So I was like, oh, I can't remember what one came <laughs> Well, the Georgians came first, but I can't tell you when. Anyway, moving on. Um, Surely so... the Victorians then, because Queen Victoria would have been about before Queen Elizabeth. Well, that's <laughs> obvious. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. <laughs> But Queen Elizabeth moving on. Moving on. So anyway, her defence was this all came from like inhaling arsenic. What what does this come from? That story. Anyway, so her defence was the arsenic in the wallpaper. However, the jury retired for ninety minutes before finding Mary Ann guilty. They were not buying it at all that yeah this one person might have died from inhaling fumes but like 15 other people no now the times which was the newspaper correspondent reported on the 20th of march (laughs) exactly um after conviction the wretched woman exhibited strong emotion but this gave place in a few hours to her habitual cold reserved demeanour and while she harbours a strong conviction that the royal clemency will be extended towards her she staunchly asserts her innocence of the crime that she had been convicted of like i get the newspapers but back then god so many words just one sentence with some like something that makes sense would be great 
I was no. going to say you love reading out a judge's thing, but that is one of the most confusing ones I've ever heard. Uh, it's like chucking a thesaurus at someone. <laughs> now, several petitions were presented to the Home Secretary, but to no avail. So they were, so technically, let's just put this into English. She was sentenced to death and people did put in petitions for that not to happen and to, you know, get her guilt, like plead her innocence, etc, etc. But this did not work. Mary Ann Cotton was hanged at Durham County Jail on the 24th of March, 1873, by William Calcraft. And that was the life, the very short <laughs> life of Mary Ann Cotton. But she managed she might have had a short life, a but lot imagine in. all the people around her. Exactly. Now, she managed to fit a hell of a lot in when she uh, murdered. And it's apparently that the number of victims are between 1 and 21 or more. So technically she got mm. hanged for the for the murder of Charles, but every other murder around her did not go to court. Wow. You know, like the husbands, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that, that that is crazy for the 1800s, mm. I must say. But it shows you how easy it was back then to like kill people. Yeah. Oh, Which sounds really silly, but it was so, yeah, it was so easy just to be like, and I'll kill them off. Moving on. Mm-hmm. And like people yeah. just never checked. 